Section 14 of the Centaurians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Centaurians by Biagi. Chapter 12, Part 1. The following day dawned clear, bright and hot. The heat irritated Sheldon and inspired orative propensities in Zach's. Both were engaged in argument as I entered the room reserved for er gossip. They are certainly a cold-blooded, soulless race, agreed Zags to Sheldon's testy exclamation. Fish. The result of over-civilization, continued Zags with merciless deliberation. They have reached the acme of that which we deem impossible, yet gaze upon in all its remarkable rarity. Perfection and in the whole universe I see nothing so imperfect. Yet these people are sublimely satisfied with themselves. Their complacency and faith in their superiority is superb. I wouldn't be one of them. In their marvelous conceit they have dared penetrate and would crush nature's final repose. Their indefatigable search for knowledge is spurred by the belief that everlasting existence is accomplished in conquering all mysteries. Death to them is full realization. Having solved the problem of joy, they forfeited immortality. Earth is their paradise. They and their world beyond have reached perfection. There is nothing beyond. I hastened to change the subject. Zax's words filled me with horror as I thought of the beautiful girl whose supreme ambition was for immortality, which she expected to gain through deeds, not death. Knowledge would be the ruination of this grand race. Sachs spoke the truth, but I would not believe, and accused him of hasty judgment, and ever on the alert for effect. He shook his head, gravely reiterating his statements of the strange repellent centurions, from whom he would learn all he could, considering them, from a scientific point of view, most interesting. He emphatically preferred the potolilis and octragonus. I hurried to the gardens to avoid further discussions, but my friends soon joined me. We strolled beneath gigantic trees, enjoying their cool, quiet protection from the fierce sunlight. Strange flowers grew in profusion, flowers of massive beauty and sickening sweet fragrance. "'Monstrosities! Flowers! Centurions!' snapped Sachs, still harping on the subject that made me realize the full meaning of despair." I passionately loved the beautiful centurion who ruled over this abnormal civilization, whose demise meant, bah, does Sachs know any more about it than the rest of us? Impatiently I turned away, colliding with a huge bush glorious in bloom, whose exquisite flower of transparent whiteness petaled a star-shaped golden heart. Instantly the beautiful, heavy, fragrant clusters enslaved the senses with a strange, ecstatic glamour. The compelling personality of the siren I worshipped roused vivid, overpoweringly, crowding from my mind all obnoxious warnings. Impulsively, I plucked the gorgeous witch flowers and, with fervent message, sent them to the fairest, most beautiful woman in all the world. The reply was brief, characteristic, despairing. Alpha Centauri was thankful I had rested well, which I hadn't mentioned, and trusted I would find the day full of enjoyment. She would receive me when I returned from the observatory. Damn the observatory, I blurted out. 
Another man, no fake, chirped Sheldon in his usual consoling manner. A fine girl like that, of course, has admirers. I don't believe it, I bawled. Centaur is not interested in your beliefs, he retorted, and, oh well, have it anyway, that stickling. She's been waiting all her life for, uh, you, dear boy. He snickered while I, with growing excitement, declared my intention of shirking the observatory. Bravo, Sally, my suggestion exactly, Sheldon laughed. The observatory will come later. It always does, just one particular twinkler now. When that pales... A number of gentlemen unexpectedly joined us. Apparently they had been waiting for us somewhere, and I was cheated out of my reply. Sheldon fairly shook his exasperating enjoyment as he maneuvered to prevent me getting any closer to him than a block. We were escorted to the museum, our way leading mostly through the vast gardens of the palace. From time to time, along the route, groups of gentlemen casually joined us until, as Sheldon elegantly expressed it, we ought to be tagged or the pound might take us for the lost tribe of Roman Jews and get rude. We strolled along in pairs and groups. I was told off to a set of pretty bubbling inconsequence, whose beauty, gracefulness and astonishing interest displayed in Sheldon's witticisms impressed me rather favorably. I amused myself watching Sachs, as he cleverly jungled with the people he thought so little of, making them his friends but finally, bored into deep meditation, completely forgot them all, even the beardless fashionables whom the centurions considered my class, who, uneasy at my absent-mindedness and congeniality, slyly slipped away one by one. Unnoticed, I escaped down a side-path, where a sea of pink bloom tempted me to wander in amazed admiration through a veritable forest of waxen lilies. But their roseate beauty, fragrance failed to lighten the gloom, that now gripped desperately. For the first time in my life, I realized my own individual worth. Stripped of wealth, the ruling deity of my world, I stood revealed an ordinaire without talent or inspiration, a dissatisfied, nondiscreet, riling at fate, limited in the higher treasures of enlightenment before which this fair, radiant land of mighty ideals kneeled. Sachs, Sheldon, Saunders and myself had battled with northern horrors to discover same evil world of sordidness, shoddily veneered, ranting victory over impulse, but coveting, struggling for the imaginary power of knowing all things. I had neglected to bring my one potent charm, and out of my sphere, bitter with disappointment, crazed with love-sickness, in a frenzy of desire, I vowed, vowed to possess the one woman who, from her pedestal of aloofness, roused such reverential awe. She who would solve all mysteries shall realize the joy, sorrow of savagery. Before the masterful emotion of possession, tumultuous ravings evaporated. My mind cleared, freshened as a midsummer's day after a cooling shower, and from a sweet, calm reverie I was suddenly roused by my own ringing laughter. After all, these marvelously enlightened people were not so different from us. The whole world avoids a man in love. I emerged from the forest of blush lilies. A wide waste of velvety lawn stretched far to the east, and nestling in a hollow of soft emerald, a long, grotesque structure of ivory whiteness gleamed. It was the museum. The entrance stood wide, and I entered a lofty, tiled hall, and walls wondrously carved. 
Fabulous monstrosities leered from all sides. I stepped into a spacious room hung with hand-woven silks and rare tapestries of intricate design. Rich scarves of delicate raised beading represented scenes of a strange unknown period. There were peculiar wall ornaments in circular and diamond shapes. Queer conical baskets varying in size from a thimble to a trunk woven from human hair, the various shades blending exquisitely in quaint patterns. There were curious pouches, shut lanes, and many dainty toilet articles made from the damask leather of pulped flowers, the odor after unknown centuries clinging pungently to the crushed blossoms. I strolled from one department to the other, crowded with priceless curios. It was impossible to view everything in a single day, but I did good work in the few hours I spent there, and during my stay in Centaur visited the museum many times. Most of the morning glided away as I lingered before great jewel cases containing superb gems. I marveled at the rare, beautiful settings and queer golden ornaments covered with weird inscriptions, great golden urns shaped like a bishop's mitre, and tongueless bells engraved with heathenish figures, and a part by itself with an enormous block of gold cut with minute carvings and hieroglyphic writings with a monstrous ruby like a rosebud sunk in the center. The tiny carvings represented vital epochs in the history of Centauri, and the great ruby heart would evaporate when Centauri ceased. The sentiment was very pretty. I curiously examined numerous trays of beads, their glaring colors blended gorgeously in barbaric settings. These articles were treasured because worn by the first Centauris and for centuries had ceased to be manufactured. The few remaining strings in Saxe's collection were vastly superior in make, and no doubt, in many eloquent speeches, he would be requested to donate them to the museum. I wandered into a great long picture gallery. The walls hung with rare old paintings. These people had their old masters also. For over an hour I remained before a huge painting. It seemed one could enter the pictured room and converse with the vividly animated faces, brightened with such friendly expressive eyes. In the foreground the figure of a woman reclined upon a golden couch, swathed in flimsy material, ill-concealing her dusky beauty. Deep, burning eyes gleamed intensely, heavy masses of dark hair fell all around her. She was beautiful, fascinating, yet repelled. The passionate eyes were cruel, the lovely mouth drooped, cold, cynical. Yet there was a startling resemblance between this divinity of past ages and the woman I adored. The ancient queen was feline, treacherous, and the living beauty. I was informed the portrait was a splendid likeness of the first woman to rule the centurions. Her reign had been one of culture and prosperity. She existed during the era of love and was Alpha the first. All the women of the great family have been named after her. There is a wonderful resemblance between the portrait and the present Alpha, I remarked. My informant lowered his eyes. The glamour of awe, reverence, had been well ground into these people. Apparently the present Alpha was sacred and beyond comparison. The political situation of this great country could be regarded any way it pleased the centurions, but their Alpha was their queen. The worshipful gentleman spoke, his voice trembling with pride. 
The present Alpha is divine, he told me. I saluted. And, he continued, the painting that so interests you represents the centurions just emerging from the savage state. Oh, bravo! We bowed deeply to each other and admiringly. I watched him as he strolled leisurely away. For some time I lingered studying the untamed beauty of Alpha the First. Then, as the echo of voices reached me, and fearing to encounter those who had failed to notice my absence, I hurried ahead through luxurious apartments furnished in the silken modernness of my world, and rested secure in a dimly lit room crowded with primitive earthenware, grotesque pottery, and cooking utensils. Progression had neatly divided the apartment. Near where I stood were shelves of ancient bric-a-brac and clay crockery of unique design and moulding. There were tall, shining pedestals and enormous fat vases, and behind a hideous idol with white eyes, I hid till sure those I wished to avoid had passed on. I wandered aimlessly, marvelling at the fabulous antiquity, and finally anchored in a vast department of massive machinery. Here, progression had made rapid strides. You could follow it from the crude, primitive to perfected mechanism. I came across a curiously devised instrument, raw, immature, yet very similar to Saxe's lost propylia. His invention, however, was the idea perfected, and to excite comparison and prove the superiority of his own instrument, he intended constructing a new machine and present it to the museum. I examined strange travelling conveyances, uncouth, chariot-shaped, and laughed at the repetition of custom. Chariots were in use at the present time. There were huge ocean liners and bulky, high-masted sailing vessels and ominous, sullen battleships. The railroad was ludicrously represented in complete trains of heavy, lumbersome coaches, drawn by gigantic engines, as different from the locomotives of our world as the two halves of the globe. The first aerial machine, though a complete failure, had its niche in this colossal exposition. Tragic was its history, a score or more lives sacrificed to the inventor's ambition. Navigable balloons came later, marking progress, success, in various forms. Most were square at the base with toy windmills for propellers, and if they sailed the air, all right, but not even Centauri could tempt me to enter one. Devilish implements of war and monstrous instruments of torture occupied a vast space, catalogued according to history, with civilization glaringly noticeable in the learning of refined fiendishness. It was fascinating to follow up the perpetual advancement of inhumanity. From primitive ingenuity of the antediluvian age, one stepped through the periods of enlightenment, reaching the zenith of hostile progression through an awful device, creating instantaneous blindness. This exhausted the age of war, but the exquisite cruelty of these people continued to advance. Instruments of frightful torture were extensively arrayed, foul infernal machines to whose ingenious devilishness nothing, nothing in the universe could compare. The centurions have not always been saints. Constant civilization simplifies the miraculous, but savagery exists as long as life's fluid stains red. I lost no time in getting away from the room of horrors with its loathsome exhibit of man's satanic genius and hastened down a narrow serpentine passage, plunging unexpectedly through a swinging brass net door. 
A flood of light greeted me, and I blinked and gaped in confusion. I had stumbled into the midst of a large assemblage of gigantic men and women whose stone countenances welcomed me with every variety of expression. There were joyful, beaming smiles, and fierce glances of forbiddance, but all diffidence vanished before the sweet witchery of invitation. I had reached the hall of wonderful sculpture, and at once sought the three famous loves of Centauri. Perfection in art had been attained during the era of passion. Plainly genius is a savage taint. The deadening of all emotion is productive of the marvellous in science, but abnormity is the result of too advanced civilization. In this motley collection, acquired and natural inspiration is easily discernible and progression traceable in gradual sections. The centurions had reached the inartistic height and realized it. They treasured antiquity above all the miraculous inventions of modern times. Conspicuously set apart and above, in lofty azure niches, the three grand passions of the dark ages gazed down upon their stone dominion. I paused before a colossal figure in quartz, richly veined with gold, a form of heavy, generous proportions, a dull, stupid face. This was love. The sculptor was a master, but lacked originality, expression, and judging him by his work, he'd found love deucedly slow. His winged child, however, was exquisite, but failed to impress being the same fat little boy trying to fly that we're all familiar with. The third love was produced in a later generation and tantalized with enticement. The artist betrayed a cynical, humorous genius in every curve of his exquisite creation and had transformed a huge block of virgin marble into a pair of lovers. It was the work of a visionary. The human form never reached such absolute divinity. A feminine figure of petite, delicate loveliness was passionately clasped in the massive arms of a Herculean Adonis, who gazed rapturously into the upturned flower face, fascinating in winsome, diablier beauty. The pose was ideal. This risk conception was fancy, and I laughed softly as I figured out the situation. Each fancied, desired, toyed with the other, both were superficial, and the sculptor, after a varied experience, happily discovered that love was merely a fleeting disturbance. Vaguely I wondered if anything so incredulous could be true, and devoutly hoped so. Centauri I loved, fiercely desired, but should the end be disastrous, I would give all my wealth to have the madness flit airily away into convenient, mischievous fancy." Not caring to mar the delightful, whimsical impression this astounding fantasy made upon me, I left the museum. The morning was far advanced, noon, I judged by the sun. There wasn't a soul in sight, just a broad expanse of calm and peace throbbing beneath the scorching sun, and my enchanting forest of vermilion flickered, sultry, seemingly hundreds of miles away. I decided to go to the city. It was a long tramp, but I rested frequently in cool green parks, shaded by giant trees. Houses at first were few, quaintly picturesque, surrounded with beautiful gardens and orchards. Soon this lovely rural simplicity gave way to broad avenues lined with costly residences, but after a while, though the uniformed elegance was very impressive, I wearied of the monotonous similarity of the old domed buildings glistening with a greenish lusser. It was this sea lusser which caused Sheldon to exclaim when beholding the palace of Centauri, a palace of crystal. 
Houses were not crushed together as seen in our cities. Each building was centered in a spacious square and all surrounded with high, solid walls. Curious, I examined this wall. The surface was smooth, shiny, and cold. I decided the foundation was of stone, veneered with a combination of air. A short distance ahead, a gentleman stepped from one of the gardens, and I hastened to join him. He had no objection to my company. The centurions are a genial social race. It was not long, however, before he discovered I was one of the four strangers who had crossed, and so on, and he hung like a burr. He was full of information, tedious with lengthy explanations. He went clear around the city to reach a point just across the street, and I watched for a chance to lose him, deciding finally to excuse myself and streak up another avenue, when suddenly he grasped my arm, murmuring, The hour of worship, and rushed me ahead to avoid the people trooping from houses and gardens who swelled the great throng that gradually swooped upon us. In the crush I lost my friend, but could see him peering for me in all directions and cheerfully eluded him. I was forced along, wondering at the destination of this dense, silent throng, all so hurried and earnest, travelling with settled purpose in one direction, women vividly beautiful with health, men muscular, powerful in their strength, children fresh with a cherubic loveliness, a fascinating crowd. Suddenly, loud shouts of warning rang clear on the sultry air. I heard the clattering of horses' hoofs upon the hard pavement. The crowd parted with shrill cheers, and a chariot drawn by plunging white horses flew by. A woman stood erect, holding with one hand the reins guiding the flying steeds. The other was pointed to the heavens. A woman, tall, straight, a goddess with dark tresses floating in the breeze. Alpha Centauri, I gasped. I, Alpha Centauri, the man next to me answered. Priestess of the sun, cried a second. The bride of knowledge, whose wedding gift was divinity, murmured a third, and it is all very pretty, I thought, and what a poetical sentimental race these people are. Steadily pressing onward, with constant reinforcements trooping from every avenue, the crush became alarming, but finally we entered a wide park, and in relief the people spread like a great black wave over the green lawn, thinning to an obelisk peak toward a shining temple, with glistening steeples topped with huge golden globes. The bronze portals stood wide, and carried along by the rush of devout centurions, I entered a place dark with the chill of a sepulchre. My eyes, accustomed to the brilliant sunlight, at first could distinguish nothing, but gradually the darkness lifted. I was in a house of worship crowded with a kneeling, reverent congregation. Ignorant of what they worshipped, I could not kneel, but squatted upon the cold, tiled floor and peered through the dim light. A long hall, wide, windowless, with lofty domed ceiling and rounded walls, hung with rich tapestries and exquisite wood edgings. In the roof was a circular opening about twenty feet in diameter. This admitted all the light and ventilation. No wonder the place was cold, dark, and filled with close vapors. Directly beneath this opening, four massive yet transparent columns rose, and in the center a figure stood heavily draped, with face upturned and arms hanging limply at the sides. In the dimness at first I took this form for a fifth column. The congregation was a silent one, no psalm-singing minister or priest. Yet all were reverently, devoutly engrossed. 
Gradually the light grew brighter, clearer, and long, slanting rays of the sun filtered through the opening. Longer, stronger grew these slants of light and heat penetrating the darkest corner. Then suddenly the sun itself appeared, a round burning disk, high in the heavens, directly above the opening. The temple was flooded with light, and the figure I took for a statue moved, flinging up its arms in worshipful adoration, chanting weirdly in low tones. As the sun moved, so did the form. I caught a glimpse of the face, and fell against my neighbor with a loud, startled cry, but my voice was drowned in the great volume of music that filled the place. These people, with lifted faces and outstretched arms, sang ardently, sang to the sun. And the woman upon whom I feasted my eyes stood in all her marvelous loveliness amid the burning rays of this fiery god, in truth a priestess of the sun. As the sun gradually sailed over the opening, the rays became shorter, more oblique, casting odd black shadows, and finally the temple was once more in darkness. The song ended abruptly, the congregation rose and quietly dispersed. Services were over. End of section 14